0: With Elon Musk purchasing controlling interest in Twitter for $44 billion, the big question now remains, what is he going to do with it? Musk already said he wants to take the company private and promote free speech. But what does that mean? There is considerable legitimate concern over having one man, and especially one as controversial as Musk, determine what is free speech to the 300 million daily users of the massive social media outlet that influences news and politics worldwide. But Musk's purchase raises bigger questions. Who polices speech online? Who ensures the protection of individual rights on the Internet? Who makes the rules that govern online expression? Who enforces them? I'm Tom Vasage and joining us on the UCI podcast is David Kaye. David is a professor of law at UCI and author of Speech Police, The Global Struggle to Govern the Internet. He's also worked with the United Nations Human Rights Council on Freedom of Expression, where he monitored free speech issues around the world. Thank you for joining us, David. The United States has a long history of wealthy men coming in and taking control of our media. I don't recall this kind of uproar when Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post. What's different here?
1: Yeah, it's a good comparison. I mean, I think when Jeff Bezos bought the Post, he basically said, I'm going to own it, I'm going to support it, but I'm going to give the editors of the Post uh, all of the, the kind of leeway that they need and independence that they need in order to make their decisions about, editorialize, about editorial content, about the content in the paper. And that's that's a very different approach. And I think that's held, by the way. I think largely... Bezos has been hands-off. Um, huge support and, you know, great growth of investigative reporting at The Post. But but no, there's no sense that he's getting his finger in the pie, essentially. Totally different situation with Elon. I mean, Elon Musk is suggesting that he doesn't like the rules that Twitter has adopted. And the rules that Twitter has adopted for online content are essentially their way—it's like their editorial function. And he's saying— I want to own this in part because this, this platform is broken in some way. It's over-regulating speech, and I want to get rid of the rules. At least that's part of what he's suggesting. So his, his approach is, is sort of the anti-Bezos in a way. It's like, I want to own it, and I want to shape it. Well, after
0: Musk announced his plans to buy Twitter, uh, the journalist Max Boot tweeted, I am frightened by the impact on society and politics if Elon Musk acquires Twitter. He seems to believe that on social media, anything goes. For democracy to survive, we need more content moderation, not less. Is Max
1: right? He is right. Although, I mean, one thing I would say is as much as Elon Musk is, um, I think, from my perspective and from Max's perspective, um, kind of moving in this direction of getting rid of rules, I think that over time, this is true for any platform. Elon Musk will realize, I mean, again, if he's successful in, in having ownership, a controlling share, um, he will realize that he needs rules, um, that the platform will simply be unworkable without rules. And you could think of it like this. I mean, the platform is a place for all sorts of people to engage in a kind of public conversation. I mean, that's essentially the rhetoric that Twitter has adopted for many years. It's a, it's about the public conversation, But that public conversation, public debate and our access to to tweets won't really work if it's all about noise and if it's all about harassment of marginalized individuals and and marginalized communities. If that happens, you'll end up having a space that is really just a lot of people yelling at each other. I mean, people think that Twitter is where people go and yell at each other now. It'll be much worse if there's no rules. It used to be much worse than it is right now.
0: Well, you told me that these rules are largely responsible for Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube being so very popular.
1: Well, I think that's true. Um, although the rules, you know, all of these companies started without rules in in most senses. So if we're going back, you know, 15, 17 years, you know, to the ancient archaeology of these companies, they basically started by saying, look, we want to hoover up as much content as we can. So we don't want to have rules. We want people to be engaged on this platform, to post whatever they like, for it to be kind of a free speech forum. And Twitter, in fact, early on became known sort of through one of the statements of one of his founders as the free speech wing of the free speech party. And that worked for a while. I mean, that did get, that was popular, but they were relatively small platforms. But as they grew and their impact on society became even bigger, and they became places for, you know, real um, impact on society, but also debate and communication and so forth, they realized that in order for the platforms to actually function as designed, to actually allow that kind of communication, they had to have rules. So they had to have rules about, hate speech for example because a lot of people were using the platform as a as a place to harass in particular like women journalists or minority groups or others and not just to harass them you know and you know we can say you know outside of online space harassment is you know if there's no harm it's fine but i don't think that's true offline and certainly online that kind of harassment was designed to kick people off the platform to minimize their voice, and so if you don't have any rules, you are going to have a lot of that. You'll also have disinformation, you'll have um, you know hate speech of all sorts, and that that's just not the kind of platform that people will, I think, over time enjoy going to.
0: Because social media became a large platform for extremist groups to spread their word around the world, where before
1: they were limited to like pamphlets. Exactly. Right, exactly. So in my book, I make this a little analogy, which may resonate in Orange County, um, which is, you know, if you have the John Birch Society, for you know, kind of a famous, um, you know, racist uh, organization that had a, a fairly uh, big foothold in certain parts of Orange County, they had pamphlets, right? And, 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 you know, those pamphlets would be, you know, disconcerting to people, but they didn't have the reach that you know, somebody like Steve Bannon, or, uh, you know, a, you know, we could even talk about terrorist groups, you know, which did have a presence on the platform for many years. Um, those kinds of, you know, actors on the platform can suddenly get not just access to a few people through a pamphlet on the streets of or on the beach down in Huntington, you know, they can get access to millions of people, to recruit, to get their ideas out there, to harass people, to promote hate, hateful kind of ideas, and for the from the platforms' perspective, which again, you know, also are, you know, they're not governments. You know, they have their own kind of First Amendment rights and free expression rights to design their platform as they wish. You know, if they if they don't have that ability to control that kind of get kind of content. I just think there are going to be cesspools, which is what a lot of people think social media is already.
0: Well, this uh, anything goes approach that Elon Musk is talking about is going to really face, uh, let's say, stern opposition outside of the United States, where governments are much more involved with with, uh, moderating social media content. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, around so on the one hand you know, the platforms offer people around the world space that they might not otherwise have. So if you go to a place like Cambodia, just as an example, you know, it's mostly state media. I mean, there's very little independent media that people can get access to, but they can get it on Facebook, they can get it on Twitter. And, um, you know, that, that kind of availability is really important to people. But at the same time, these communities outside the United States, they don't have a First Amendment tradition, now Cambodia is different but if you think about Europe or you know or Japan or South Korea or Australia many places with vibrant democracies their their way of thinking about freedom of expression which they protect and people really enjoy it's not the first amendment it's more related to human rights norms around free speech which is you know we promote free expression but we also promote the ability for all voices to participate.
0: You say that's Article 19 of the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Yeah, exactly.
1: So Article 19 protects everyone's right. And, and there's actually a treaty also, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is binding on states as compared to the Declaration, which is more aspirational. The, the Article 19 says, everyone has the right to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas of all kinds, regardless of frontiers and through any media. It's a really amazing right when you think about it, because if you think about the First Amendment, it just says, Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or the press, and there's nothing else. You know, we have a lot of jurisprudence, but it doesn't really articulate in the way Article 19 does that the right to free expression isn't just about the speaker, it's also about the audience. And so you want to protect the audience's right to get information. And when you have a cacophony of voices that are like trying, some of which are trying to to take some voices offline or out of the public space, that's an interference with freedom of expression. So the platforms need to be thinking in those terms. The other part of it is that states under human rights law may restrict expression as long as it meets some pretty narrow tests. And those kinds of tests involve us thinking about, is it necessary to restrict freedom of expression in order to, for example, protect the rights of others. So it might be you you limit certain kinds of expression in order to, to protect everyone's right, say, to privacy. So we don't like doxing, you know, where somebody publishes the personal information of somebody. That's an interference with somebody's free expression, but that free expression is interfering with somebody else's privacy rights. So when we think about, you know, the, the framework that human rights law brings, which is an understanding that there are multiple rights going on and that we need to not really balance, but understand that those rights need to coexist with one another, it allows us to see sort of free expression and online speech in a in a fuller way than you get from just thinking in the kind of Elon Musk sense, which is, or at least the way that he's suggested he, he thinks about it, which is, as you put it, anything goes, you know, free speech... In a free speech environment, the marketplace of ideas will make sure that the truthful and good ideas win. That that doesn't work in a market that is broken by hate speech, disinformation, and other things.
0: You pointed out that the Germany, the German government, is very progressive in its approach to regulating uh, uh, social media outlets. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can we learn from them?
1: So there's there's positives and negatives that we can learn from them. I'll say the positive part is that, um, and you know, President Obama actually was speaking about disinformation today up at Stanford, and he talked about transparency. Well, the German government in this law, it's known as the Network Enforcement Act or NETS-DG, kind of famously in Germany, it it requires the platforms to be transparent about their rules and how they enforce them. So that's a good thing. That's something we could learn. We could have regulation in the U.S. that says platforms need to be more transparent about what they're doing. And then we'd know more about the potential harms that they cause. But at the same time, the problem with the um, the approach of, of Germany is they basically say to the platforms, look, we have all of these criminal laws related to speech, hate speech, uh, speech related to Nazi paraphernalia, um, criminal insults, a whole range of other rules. And they're saying to the platforms, You platforms need to adjudicate claims here, and that's a problem because it really pushes the companies to act as if they are public authorities when they're not, they have business interests in mind. And so, we shouldn't be pushing the companies to basically act as if they are, you know, governments or courts. That, that also increases their power because only a certain number of companies can do that work. It's very expensive. So we need to be really careful about what we ask of the companies and what we require of them by law. And I think the model of focusing on transparency and oversight and requiring also the companies to do what I think of as human rights impact assessment, like, the, like we do environmental impact assessment, you know, make the companies do human rights impact assessments. So when they enter a market or they create a new product, they they figure out in advance, this is the likely human rights impact that it'll have. And we need to make sure that we deal with that appropriately. But we don't do any of those things now. It
0: seems to me even more dangerous subject when it comes to social media is disinformation and propaganda. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've seen it here in the United States, probably most famously with the 2016 election, and Russian Facebook accounts yeah. flooding, the, flooding uh, people's streams, yeah. but it was seen as an influencer. Yeah. And you point out in your book that uh, governments around the world use Facebook in particular for propaganda purposes. Mm-hmm. So how can disinformation and propaganda be controlled, one, by the social media companies, and two, by governments interested in regulating them?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a hard question because there are multiple ways of thinking about disinformation and propaganda. So if we first start with state disinformation and state propaganda, but also I think what happened in 2016 in particular, state manipulation, right? Those kinds of things the companies really can address through almost like intelligence operations. They can see which accounts seem inauthentic which uh, accounts are trying to manipulate and coordinate behavior so as to really manipulate the debate in a particular way. So in that, you could think of that almost as spam. You know, it's not about the content as much as the inauthentic nature of this and the manipulation that it involves. And so Facebook in particular has done a lot of work around trying to address what they call inauthentic coordinated behavior. And the other platforms can do the same. I think it's a lot harder when the disinformation and the propaganda is more organic, right so comp- you can think of it as on the one hand, you have things like state media, right? So state media like uh, russia's Russia today it's um, you can label it, you can give people the tools to know, oh, that's coming from Russia. So I need to take that with a grain of salt. Or I can understand this is understood as, um, as a propaganda outlet. So that's one form. And there, there are ways you can deal with that that don't involve just plain, out, plain, plain old censorship. But the harder problem is when people start to share, say, COVID disinformation or information about the election that they, you know, they heard somebody say and then they posted it on Facebook. What do you do about that? You know, it's not necessarily Donald Trump or the Republican Party or some other party pushing disinformation. It's people actually sharing what they think is legitimate, but it's it's a lie or it's wrong or it's part of something else. How do the companies deal with that? That's a lot harder question, because then that gets the companies into deciding, like, who is truthful and who's not. And um I just think that, that that becomes a much harder issue. It's it's a little bit easier to do if the question is very specific. For example, you know, did the Democrats steal the election in 2020? Like, we know the answer to that. I, I mean, hopefully the audience knows the answer to that, which is, you know, that's a lie that's been constructed by, you know, politically interested individuals and parties. But what do you do about—and you can do the same for certain COVID disinformation, you know, about like vaccine harms or, you know, chlorine or Clorox, whatever you might use, or or ultraviolet lights to solve. So you can deal with those kinds of things. But what do you do when people are just getting things wrong or lying? There's no, you know, law that says you can't lie. So I think it just puts the companies into a very difficult position where ultimately we have to ask, do we want the companies to be going through all of our content and deciding this is accurate and this is not? That's ultimately where that heads. I'm not saying it's a good situation where we are, but it's something we, we need to be mindful of that all of our solutions or potential solutions have pretty significant trade-offs that involve the companies getting more and more into content regulation.
0: Your book, Speech Police, ends with some ideas about the kinds of changes that would help companies and governments meet the challenges of policing content, such as establishing human rights standards, better transparency, and decentralized decision making, just to name a few. How realistic is the possibility to implement these values?
1: I mean, some are more than others. Um, Transparency, I think, is very realistic. And in fact, The European Union is right now considering a a new regulation of, um, of digital space in Europe that will require, I mean, if it's adopted, it will require the companies to be more transparent about their rules and how they enforce them. And if they do that, you know, because the companies operate at scale, it's quite possible that the companies will be more transparent across all of the jurisdictions, all the countries where they operate. So I think transparency in particular, because transparency is not content specific or viewpoint specific, it doesn't say it doesn't put the companies in a position of saying, this is good content, this is bad. You know, that's, I think that's possible. The other is, I think, human rights standards. I mean, I think that the companies are already moving in the direction of kind of assessing the impact that they have on people's rights. So they're they're already doing this in practice. but they don't always use the language of human rights. But Facebook has created a human rights division. Uh, Apple adopted a human rights policy. Google adopted a human rights policy. It's really a question now of sort of taking those policies and holding them to it, like saying, okay, you adopted this policy. How are you implementing it? Okay, you're implementing it. What's your oversight mechanism? How are we going to know that you're actually doing what you promise you're going to do? And I think... The further along you get to oversight, the harder it gets. But actually moving them incrementally into this space, I think, on both transparency and human rights standards is possible.
0: So it comes down to the big question of social media. Who is to be in charge?
1: I mean, ultimately, it should be us. I mean, that goes to the decentralization part, which is as much as possible. I mean, you could think of it, now, not all social media is the same. You know, something like Wikipedia where you have communities basically editing, moderating their own pages under certain kind of company standards. And Wikipedia has evolved over the years into a pretty great global encyclopedia. And it's worked in part because it's decentralized and yet they have standards. You could say the same for um, for Reddit. You know, Reddit used to be a terrible place for hate speech and disinformation, and there's still parts of that. But they've also decentralized so that they have standards, and yet each of their groups are managed by people who commit to ensuring that standards against hate speech and so forth are maintained. So like that is a direction that you could imagine some of this heading. The problem is that the biggest platforms like Facebook and Twitter don't really see that as conducive to their business model because it starts to fracture out their users And it gets harder and harder to sell them to advertisers. So at a certain point, we need to be thinking about the business model itself and how that works. And all of this is to say, in just in answering the question, like who decides is, we know who we don't want to decide specifics on content. We don't really want governments to make those decisions. That very quickly, and you look around the world and you see this, that very quickly gets to state censorship. But we also don't want, you know, wealthy people to bring it back to Elon Musk, you know, people with all this money and power that they can make the rules and they can decide what rules make sense only for them and their kind of, you know, uh, accretion of wealth, that's also a problem. So we need to at least use these standards of transparency and human rights approaches to really give individuals as much, really as much power as they can to see this is how the platform operates These are the rules that they're using. This is what I can do and what I can't do on this platform. And then they can essentially vote with their feet, whether they want to stay in or walk away from the platforms. That, I think, over the long term is going to be the approach we're going to need to take.
0: Well, thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Tom. Enjoy the conversation.
0: The UCI podcast is a production of the Office of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs. Thank you for listening.